If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to look at the very last chapter of that book together. It comes right after Proverbs. And uh, it's a joy to be with you here at the end of 2017, the beginning of 2018, among friends, to open God's Word, to give Elbert a little bit of a break. I heard from him last night to assure that he was praying for me and for you as we gathered here today. And um, I'm delighted to open this book to you. It's, a, it's an incredibly modern book if you look at Ecclesiastes. It's a, a book that speaks to dilemmas and frustrations that strike us as very contemporary and gives answers to those dilemmas and frustrations that have a very current ring to them. And that's remarkable since this book is 3,000 years old. And yet it's talking about things that you and I can relate to, and it's giving us answers that will actually help us. One of the things I love about the book of Ecclesiastes is the preacher, and that's what he calls himself. Ecclesiastes is actually the English version of a Latin word that translates the Greek and the Hebrew word for what the person who writes this book calls himself, and it means the preacher. So that he calls himself the preacher. Now, a lot of the things that he says that he has done and has sound like he was a king. So a lot of people associate this with King Solomon. But the author of this book consistently calls himself the preacher. And the preacher is not afraid to ask hard questions. And that's very good. That's actually very important for us. I think sometimes Christians going through hard things are afraid that they can't ask hard questions about those hard things without seeming as if they don't believe God, they don't believe the Bible, they have abandoned the faith. But the preacher is willing to ask very hard questions. And that's quite good because I know for a lot of my friends, 2017 has been a hard year. Uh, and there are a lot of reasons why it's been a hard year for them. For some of them, it, it may be political or social, or cultural, or societal, or personal, or familial, or marital, or vocational. There, there can be all sorts of reasons why 2017 was a hard year. And I know I have some, some dear Christian friends that have been asking hard questions uh, about where they are and about where our culture and our country is right now. And I'm thankful for a book like Ecclesiastes that isn't afraid to delve into hard things, go to dark places, and ask hard questions. So before we look at this book together, and especially chapter 12, and the, which is sort of the summary of the book, let's pray and ask for God's help and blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, your word is true, and your words are better than life. As, as, as you tell us of your loving kindness in your word, there is nothing better in this world, in this life, than the life that you supply by your loving kindness and that you tell us about with your word. Your word, Lord, will never fail or fade away. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. So we need your word, Lord, as we think about hard things and we go to dark places. So open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This is the word of God. Hear it, beginning in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails. Because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. The preacher in Ecclesiastes is asking a question. And the question is, how can we live a meaningful, a purposeful life of fulfillment in a fallen world filled with disappointments and disasters and injustices? How can we possibly find meaningfulness and fulfillment and purpose in the kind of world that we live in? And his answer to that question is, apart from God, I have some bad news for you. 
His answer to that question is, if you try to do that, if you try to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment in this world, apart from God, well, here's the answer. Life is empty. That's the, that is the thesis statement of this book. And you look at it. Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 11. It was repeated. You heard it there in verse 7. Was it verse 7? Verse 8. He, he repeated it for us in verse 8 of chapter 12. But he says it for the first time in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Life is empty. Vanity of vanities. Empty of emptiness. Everything is empty, is his answer. If you try to live life in this world apart from God, you are going to find no meaning, no purpose, no satisfaction, no fulfillment. That's why I say he's willing to go to some dark places and he's willing to ask some hard questions because the thesis of his book is life is empty. And it's stated that way, not because that is the preacher's final verdict, but to shock us into reckoning with what it means to try and live this life apart from God or without living trust in God. If, if we're really going to reckon with the realities that we're facing and not deal with them either by denial or by diversion... Those are your two options. Denial, well, it's not, it's not really that bad. It's actually, it's all, it's all good. Or diversion, well, I'm just going to think about something else. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite R&B groups from the 70s was Earth, Wind, and Fire. And if, if you've ever listened to their lyrics, you know, it's sort of like this. Nuclear destruction is imminent, let's dance. <laughs> okay, I mean, that, that, that's essentially their message, okay? You know, the human race is running over me. So I dance. It's my system of survival. I mean, that's, that's a lyric from Earth, Wind, and Fire. Okay, so diversion is the way they're going to go, okay? Nuclear destruction imminent, let's dance, okay? So denial or diversion, those are your two options. And, and, the, and, the, and the author of Ecclesiastes says, actually, that doesn't get you what you think it gets you. Um, now, if I could state his thesis in a longer form, it would be like this. Life, and do you remember he uses this phrase, under the sun? He uses that over and over in the book. Under the sun. Life under the sun. And for him, that phrase under the sun means living as if there is not a greater reality beyond this world. You know, looking at things just from the perspective of this life and not thinking about eternity and not thinking about the God that brought this world into being, but just living as if this world is all there is. And so he calls that life under the sun. Life under the sun, life lived apart from God, is empty. It's meaningless. It's futile. It's a bad joke. And in this book, the preacher argues that every human avenue to meaning and fulfillment apart from faith in the God of providence will fail. And essentially what he does is he walks you through different ways that people try and find meaningfulness and fulfillment and satisfaction and purpose in this life. And let me just point you to a few 
that he mentions along the way. If you look at chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, look at chapter 1, look at verses 12 to 18, and then look at chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. He, he talks about this twice. He, he tells you, here's escape route number one. You know, here's, here's one way that people try to find meaning and fulfillment in this life. They try to find it through the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. Now, is he saying that wisdom and knowledge are bad? No. I mean, he says, did, did you remember? He just said, I spent my whole life trying to collect wisdom and knowledge. So he's not saying wisdom and knowledge are bad. But what he is saying is this. Wisdom and knowledge by themselves, in and of themselves, cannot supply ultimate meaning and purpose apart from God. They cannot supply the source of that. Uh, they, do not, are, they are not the source of that which gives meaning and purpose in life. Uh, one famous 19th century author said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And th there's a certain truth to that, isn't it? He, what, what he's saying is, isn't it tragic that people go through this life not really ever thinking about it? You know, when, when I was a... When I was a kid, I had, a, I had a lot of friends, high school and college, that they lived to party. I mean, that's what they lived for. They lived to party. And, and I often thought, have you ever had a thought? You know, have you ever thought about life? Is there anything more than just going out and getting drunk on the weekends and, and having wild parties? Is there anything more than life to that? Well, the, the author who said the unexamined life is not worth living, is kind of poking at that kind of, you know, human low-rent hedonism that you get with some people. But look, even the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge and learning apart from God cannot supply the answer to the question of meaning and satisfaction and purpose and fulfillment. And the preacher, who's a pretty smart guy and who has spent his life pursuing knowledge, says... That in and of itself, apart from God, is not the answer. Some of the most cynical people that I know, some of the most bitter people I know, are brilliant, knowledgeable, learned people. And they're bitter cynics. Now, why can that happen? <laughs> because there's a way to pursue wisdom and knowledge with God as your ultimate hope, and then there's a way of pursuing wisdom and knowledge where God is not your ultimate hope. And pursuing wisdom and knowledge apart from God is not going to supply the meaning and fulfillment that you're looking for. That, that's what he says in, in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now go back and look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Now he gives a second escape route. That escape route is the escape route of pleasure. You know, so if we, um, uh, can just get enough pleasure, just experience, uh, the, 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 the satiation of our senses, we can find enjoyment in this life. And so in chapter two, verses one to 11, he addresses the belief that pleasure can provide meaning and satisfaction in life. But once again, he, he points out that 
that doesn't work because that's not how God created us to be satisfied and fulfilled. God did not create us to be satisfied by anything less than him. You remember the famous C.S. Lewis line where he says, the problem is not that people want too much, it's that they settle for too little. And you see what he's getting at. He's saying people think that they're out there getting a lot for themselves when in fact they are gathering up table scraps in comparison to having a relationship with the living God who created them for his glory and for their everlasting good. Their problem isn't that they want too much, it's that they're satisfied with table scraps when they could have the living God. Well, that's what he's saying here. You can have all the pleasure in the world that you want and it cannot in and of itself fulfill you because God didn't make you to be fulfilled that way. Then he gives another escape route. You see it in chapter 2, verses 18 to 26. And this is the escape route of work or vocation. The, the idea that our work, our job, our calling, our vocation can provide us ultimate fulfillment. Now, once again, there's nothing wrong with work. Work is a good thing. Labor is good. Labor is dignity instilling. That's why, we, that, that's why all of us ought to care about unemployment because labor is dignity instilling in people. And, and so we all ought to care about that. But apart from God, Work in and of itself cannot provide ultimate meaning. Uh, this last month, I got to do one of the most thrilling things that I've ever done in my life. I was back for my third visit to Indonesia. We've been partnering to do theological education in Indonesia. Indonesia is the fourth largest country in the world behind China, India, and the United States, about 260 million people. It's the largest Muslim country in the world, and the gospel is blowing up there. People are becoming Christians left and right in the largest Muslim country in the world. And until just recently, the governor of the second largest city in the world, Jakarta, 30 million people, twice the size of New York City. Twice the size of New York City. You could put 12 Mississippis in Jakarta. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable. Until just recently, the governor of the second largest city in the world, which is the largest Muslim city in the world, was a Christian. And he's in prison now, and I got to go visit him. And I, I've, I've never had the privilege of being able to go visit a brother in Christ in prison who's there because of Jesus. And uh, I, I will never forget it. It's one of the greatest moments in my life. And it made me regret that, you know, it, I, you know if, if you and I had lived in the first, second, or third centuries, all of us would have had friends in prison because of Jesus. Now, some of you who lived through civil rights have had Christians in prison because of the love of Jesus. John MacArthur, the great... Bible preacher out in California, dear friends of, of John Perkins, he was in prison with John Perkins in Mendenhall in the 1960s for preaching the gospel. 
And I wish I could have gone and visited them in prison uh, back then. But I wasn't in Mississippi then, and I was eight years old. So I, you know, I, I couldn't have done that. But I got to go visit the governor in prison. And one of the interesting things he said to me was, Ligon, he said, God was not in all my thoughts in, 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 in my work as governor. He said, I, he said, he said look, I, I read my Bible every day. I prayed every day. But he was going into work at 4 a.m., and he was coming home at 11 at night. I mean, you can imagine, you're the governor of 30 million people. Can you imagine the job? And he, and he said, God was not all my thoughts. And he said, he said, Ligon, I think one reason that the Lord used my extremist Muslim enemies to put me in prison was so that I would spend time with him. It, wow. And, and he, here he is saying, now notice there, work is good. And praise God that we have Christians that are leaders in government and business and law and medicine and school teaching and, you know, a thousand other vocations. Praise God for that. But sometimes work can, it can, it can just press everything else out. And that, he said that, that had happened to him. And he said, now I'm kind of on a retreat with God. I'm here in prison and there's nothing else for me to do but to read my Bible and talk to God and think of God all day long. But he, he just commented on the, how the pace of his life had sort of pressed God out of his schedule. My friends, even for believers, it can be that way with work. We, work can be so much of what we are that there's not much of God in it. Now, we want to approach our work for the glory of God, and we want to do it for the glory of God. But some, sometimes it's a delicate balance, isn't it, as to what we're really finding our meaning and our satisfaction from. Is it our work or is it God? And are we honoring God in our work or has our work become our God? Well, the, the, the preacher says here, your work in and of itself apart from God cannot provide you meaning and satisfaction. And then one, one more thing. If you look at chapter 5, he gives another escape route. How do you find meaning and satisfaction in this fallen, fickle world filled with disappointments and disasters? Well, he says, some people go the way of affluence. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Money, stuff. And, and they think that things, a lot of things, can... Uh, can provide the satisfaction and fulfillment you want with life. Remember the old bumper sticker? Um, he who dies with the most toys wins. That's kind of this philosophy. If I can get more stuff, uh, then I can find satisfaction. But, but again, he says, look, I've had everything you can have. And I can attest to you that it does not in and of itself provide satisfaction. While I was in Indonesia, before I got to go meet with the governor in prison. The first three days I was there, we were on a 115-foot luxury yacht owned by a Chinese multi-billionaire. And uh, some, most of you are too uh, young to remember a television show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Well, let me tell you, when I got on that yacht, I thought, okay, this is what it means to have a lifestyle of the rich and famous. It had four decks, 
On the top deck, there was an outdoor jacuzzi on the deck of this yacht. I mean, it was just, it was just unbelievable. The suite that I, lived, that I was in was nicer than any hotel room I've ever seen. Uh, it, it was just an unbelievable experience. Um, but while we were there, all of us who were on the yacht those three days were Christians. Uh, they were the board members and wives from RTS and um, some other friends meeting with our Indonesian partners. And uh, the, our, our partner there was friends with this Chinese billionaire. And so he was using his yacht and this Chinese billionaire's yacht. But interestingly, the Chinese billionaire's yacht was named Blue Sky. And um, the, uh, the, the name of our Christian partner's yacht was something like Grace Alone. <laughs> it, was, it was a great, <laughs> any rate. Um, so we're there, and we start to talk to the crew. The crew, like 16 crew members on this yacht, waiting on us hand and foot, you know, taking care of our every need at every moment all day long. Uh, and we started to talk, to talk with them, and we really enjoyed they, they were from all over the place, Australia, Europe, America, Hong Kong. They were from all over the place. And at the end of our time there, they said, you know, this is so different for us because we've never had anybody on this yacht who spoke to us. I mean, they, they were treated like slaves. They were, they were treated like servants, you know, just sort of get me what I want. And, and we talked with them. And, uh, and they, they were really interesting. They had really interesting stories, and we asked about their families. But I, I, I thought about that later. Here's, here's this Chinese billionaire who has no, no relationship whatsoever with a crew that are his employees. He's never asked about them, never checked on them, never found out about their life. And, and you think you can have all the money in the world, and if you don't have relationships with people, you're living an impoverished life. Now, and here are these wonderful people that are working, the interesting people from different backgrounds and different ages, some married, some single, some long-term crew workers, some just doing it for a couple of years to earn money for school, lots of different backgrounds, and nobody who owns that thing even knows them. So you can, you can have a lot of money and miss one of the greatest blessings of life, which is knowing other people and having friendships with them. And so, and, and so the, the author... Uh, the preacher here in Ecclesiastes says affluence, things, material blessings, as wonderful as they can be, it cannot supply you with the meaning and satisfaction that you're looking for in this life. And so really what he does for 10 chapters is he shows you that there's no way to fill up the emptiness in this life apart from God. And then finally, when he gets to chapter 12, he says, okay, I'm going to give you the secret. Now, I love things like that. <laughs> Don't you? When, when somebody's about to tell you the secret of the thing, it's one of the reasons I love um, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. I've preached on that passage here at, uh, at Redeemer Church before, and it's where Paul gives the secret of his ministry. He basically says, Timothy, let me tell you what my philosophy of ministry is. You know, and I, I love it. When, when Paul is about to tell me what his philosophy of ministry is, I am all ears. Tell me what your philosophy of ministry is. And, of course, his answer is, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And you're going, whoa! All of Paul's teaching, all of Paul's writing, all of Paul's theology is designed to do what? 
produce love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Awesome! You know, that's one you write down on the wall. Or like the passage that Zach read today. You know, the, 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 the guy comes sauntering up to Jesus and says, Well, Jesus, I'd like to know what your opinion is on what the great commandment is. And you see what he's saying. He's saying, what's the most important thing that God has ever said to us in his law? And Jesus says, okay, here it is. And you know, you're going, oh, okay, I want to hear this. And it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That's it. <laughs> Sum it all up. Or, you know, there are passages like um, uh, Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. I love mottos and, and philosophy statements and summary statements like that. Well, he does that in this passage. He says, okay, all of these things don't work to give you rich life, full life, real life, meaning, purpose, fulfillment, satisfaction apart from God, but this is how you do it. I love that. And we really could do a sermon series on this passage, but let me restrain myself and just point you to three things that I want you to look at in chapter 12. And look at chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. That's the first thing. And, the, and basically what he says is, here, secret number one, serve God early. Serve God early. Then uh, take a look at verses 9 to 12. And he says, here's the second thing, know what knowledge is for. Know what knowledge is for. So serve God early know what knowledge is for and then look at verses 13 and 14 this is the you know this is sort of the 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 purpose statement of all purpose statements in life and it goes like this fear god and follow his word so he, he, those there's my outline serve god early know what knowledge is for fear god and follow his word let's we'll just walk through that together real quick here's the first thing look at verses 1 to 8. Look at verse 1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Uh, what the preacher is saying is this. In light of the brevity of life, we ought to serve God with joy and energy from the first of our days. Don't wait until later to be all about God and his work. Start early. This is huge, folks. I was, um, I, I was at a wedding last night to see a couple of people in the room who were there with me, and really neat families. The, the grandfather of the groom is 91 years old, and they didn't know whether he was going to be able to make it down the aisle. You know, he's just at that stage. But he's, he's also suffering dementia. And um, his son, uh, a dear friend of mine, the father of the groom, was saying to me before the wedding, you know, Dad, 
He's just ready to go home to be with Jesus. He's got dementia. His body's breaking down. He's just ready to go home to be with Jesus. Well, I understand that. I understand that. You get to, a, you get to stages in life where you're just ready to go home and be with Jesus. Um, after the first service, a, a lady met me, met me at the door and said, my, my mother passed last month. And she had gotten to that point physically where she, did, she hurt all the time. She couldn't get to church. In fact, before she died, her pastor had gone to visit her. And she cried when her pastor came to visit her because she said, Pastor, I can't get to church anymore. I'm, I'm so weak and frail, I can't get to church. And it, it just grieved her. And she said to her daughter, I just want to go home and be with the Lord. And, and the whole picture, and it's, it's, it's painted in funny ways. You look at verses 2 through 7. The whole picture here is of an old person. Now, this is a person whose eyes are bad, kind of like mine, who's losing their teeth. Uh, who can't hear well, who's afraid, uh, you know, old, what are old people afraid of? Probably more than anything else, falling. So, you know, you see that he's terrified of heights. Why? Because you're afraid of falling. Um, it's a picture of an old person. And, and the, the point that the preacher is making is serve God when you're young before you get like this. Serve God now. Serve God early. Some of you know um, the name Malcolm Muggeridge. Malcolm Muggeridge was a famous British journalist. And he was also a Marxist and an atheist. And um, he came to faith in Christ. And at a big meeting of Christian leaders that was led by Billy Graham and John Stott, he was introduced to this huge audience. And he, he came out in front of them, and he said, I have spent some time uh, thinking about how I should address you. And I think that I should simply say, fellow Christians. And uh, what a remarkable thing for a man to have lived so much of his life, to have a, 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 a powerful intellect and a worldwide reputation as a journalist, but to be an atheist and a Marxist, to become a Christian. And he wrote an autobiography of his life. And you know what he called that autobiography? Chronicles of Wasted Time. I mean, you know, other people would have looked at his life and said, your life is exciting, it's important, it's significant. You have reported on some of the most important events of our time. You've done it with distinction. Your work has been recognized. But from his standpoint... My life was one big ball of wasted time until I met Jesus. And then the, the preacher is saying, young people, now is the time to make God your priority, to remember him, to love him, to serve him. It will color everything else you do in life. Whatever God calls you to do, whatever your vocation is, serve God Early, delight in God now. Only in that way will you be able to experience the fullness of joy that God created you for even in this fallen, frustrating world. Because if you're not armed with a sense that I belong to God, God made me, God made me for a purpose, you will feel like a victim in a world filled 
with meaninglessness and injustice if you really look around this world. You know, over and over I look around at really wonderful people who have really, really been done wrong in this world. And if, if you don't have this sense that I belong to Jesus, I belong to God, God is better than anything in this world, you'll lose your way. You'll lose your way in this life. And so there's, there's the first secret that the, the preacher says is, Secret number one is start serving God now. Not because if I serve God now, I won't have any problems. <laughs> it's we all got hard things, and we've all got hard things coming. The question is, how will we handle those things when they come? And first secret, seek God early. Second, look at verses 9 to 12. It, this is really just sort of a brief biographical note. He's sort of saying in passage in passing something about his collection of proverbs and of wisdom sayings. And basically he says this. Look at, look at verse 10. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. In other words, what he's saying is this. Knowledge was given to guide you on the way. What are goads? They're things that prod you along in the right direction. What are nails? Nails are things that allow you to hang things up and organize things and have things in their place. And so he's saying the one good shepherd gave us this knowledge so that we would know how to live. Knowledge isn't so that we can say, uh, we're smarter than other people. Or I know more than you. Knowledge is so that we can live the life that God called us to live. <laughs> that, so you need to know what knowledge is for, and you need to know how to use it. That's really what wisdom is, right? Wisdom is knowing what knowledge is for and then putting it to work in your life. That's wisdom. Some of the, some of the most intelligent people that I have ever met are some of the dumbest people that I've ever met. I mean, I, I found, in, in doing a PhD, I found out that people with PhDs are not necessarily the people with the best judgment you've ever met. They're usually people that are disciplined enough to write their stuff and get it handed in. They're not necessarily the people with the best judgment in the world. Okay? So some of the most intelligent people I've ever met have Lacks judgment, to put it charitably. So you can know a lot of stuff and not know what that stuff is for and not let it live itself out in your life. And so what he's saying is, I'm, I'm not telling you what I'm telling you to interest you or to amuse you. I'm telling you this so that you know how to live. This isn't just some exercise in entertainment. I'm telling you these things so that you know how to live. So super important for us, especially Presbyterians. It was, it was interesting. I was having another conversation with, um, with a young man uh, who was in the wedding party this weekend. And uh, 
He's from a Presbyterian background. His dad was a Presbyterian minister. And uh, he said, he said, I've been visiting a Baptist church. And he said, you know, those people know how to love. He said, those people know how to love. He said, we know how to think, but they know how to love. I thought it was a very interesting statement. But God didn't give us the truth so that we could be smarter than other people. He gave us the truth so that we would be maximally loving, so that we would know how to live the Christian life. So truth that's not put into practice isn't worth its weight in whatever you want to say it's worth its weight in. I mean, it's, you, you've got to know what the knowledge is for that the Lord is teaching you. And so the, the preacher is saying here, true knowledge, true knowledge is designed to guide us in the way of life and to help us have meaning and purpose and fulfillment even in this fallen world filled with disappointments and disasters. Third and finally, look at uh, verses 13 and 14. In conclusion, when all has been heard, here's the answer. So what, what's the answer to vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What's the answer to life is empty? What is the answer to life under the sun is empty? Here's the answer. Fear God and keep his commandments. Don't you love that? It's almost like the song we're going to sing. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And I, and I, I love those kinds of simple things because, look, the Christian life is not rocket science. You know, you do not have to have a PhD in semiology to understand this. This is, this is very basic stuff. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and follow his word. That's the secret. Now let's break, break that apart for a second and look at both sides. The, what is the fear of God? Is it some sort of cringing fear that this tyrant in the sky is going to throw boulders on us? No. What is the fear of God? The fear of God is a controlling sense of the majesty and the holiness of God. And a profound reverence for Him. Or to put it this way, the fear of God is a joy-filled reverence and awe of the one true God which shakes us to the core and elicits a response of faith and love. Um, some of you are C.S. Lewis fans and you've read the Chronicles of Narnia and you remember the passage in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Susan, Lucy, and Peter are talking with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they're very concerned about meeting Aslan the lion. They want to meet him, but they're a little scared to meet him because he's a lion. Okay, that's good, children. Be scared to visit a lion. Lions are scary. And so they keep asking Mr. and Mrs. Beaver to assure them that they're going to be okay when they meet Aslan the lion. And you remember the famous statement, but is he safe? And finally, Mr. Beaver gets really angry and he says, of course he's not safe. He's a lion. <laughs> but he's good. Now, 
That's a good, what, what C.S. Lewis in a beautiful story is doing is he's showing you the picture of the fear of God. You're not okay with God because he's safe. He's not safe. He's the last thing in this world from safe. But you're okay with God because he's good. He is terrible as an army with banners, but he is good. And, and by the way, did you notice the last verse? He will bring every act to judgment and everything which is hidden to light. He is just. He is going to seek down and destroy every injustice in this world. So he's good, but he's not safe. And so, you know, in that story, uh, Lewis describes the children when they finally meet Aslan they're drawn to him, but he says they, their legs went all trembly. You know, there was, they're drawn to him, but at the same time, this kind of awesome to be in his presence. You know, and there's stories in the Gospels about that with Jesus. You know, people were drawn to Jesus. And, and yet, do you remember after the miracle when Jesus' disciple says, Depart from Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. He, he just realized, I have no business being able to be in the presence of a man who can do the things that Jesus can do. But yet he was drawn to him. Well, that's the fear of God. It's this joy-filled reverence and awe of the one true God which shakes us to the core and it brings out from us a response of faith and love. And the, um, the preacher says this, okay, you, you want to know how to have meaning and fulfillment in this life? Fear God. You, you remember the, um, there's, a, there's an old hymn that we sing that's based on a psalm, and it has this line. Fear him, ye saints, and you shall have nothing left. To fear. Fear him, ye saints, and you shall have nothing left to fear. Um, and that, that is, he, yes, 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 yes. W once you have the fear of God, there is nothing in this world which you need fear. Because you, you've now come to fear the one who made you, the one with whom your soul has to do. And he is sovereign over everything else in this world. Um, when John Knox died, I think one of the biggest compliments that was given to him was given by Regent Morton, who was the, the king was just, uh, he was, the king was like five years old when, when John Knox died. And so they had a regent ruling Scotland, and his name was Morton, Regent Morton. And over John Knox's grave, he said, here lies a man who neither feared nor flattered any flesh. It's a pretty good compliment. He, he didn't, he didn't, he wasn't afraid of and he didn't flatter anybody. Why? Because he feared God. So he said, you want to know what the secret to meaning and fulfillment is in life? Fear God. And follow his word, keep his commandments, 
Why? Because God, go back to what he just said in verses 9 to 12, the reason that God gave those words to you, the reason that God gave those commands to you was not to ruin your life, but to make your life better, to bless you. You know, in the garden, when God gave commands to Adam and Eve, those commands were meant to bless them. Guess what? God has never given a command that was not meant to bless you. So the commands are not meant to ruin your life, constrain you and repress you and oppress you. They're meant to set you free so that you're not under the fickle dominion of people and traditions in the world. You're under the freeing authority of God. And so he says, here it is. Fear God, follow his word. That's how you find satisfaction, meaning, and fulfillment in this fallen world. It's a good thing for us to remember going into 2018. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. We ask that you would work it into our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.